Welcome to the Smart Pacific Podcast from the PTC. Introducing more insights from ICT thought leaders in the Pacific and beyond is your host, Steve McClelland. Cybersecurity is a hot issue, so hot it's reached global and even geopolitical importance in the Pacific and just about everywhere else. But it's something we're all touched by, even if we don't know it. Like an iceberg, most of what's going on lies beneath the surface in abstruse technical and even legal complexities. It's bound to get more so. Upcoming is a wave of Internet of Things devices in the office, home and factory that from the cybersecurity point of view threaten to expand risks many-fold and potentially expose billions of points of vulnerability. We caught up with Professor Scott Shackelford of the University of Indiana to explain what's going on and what the outlook is. I first asked him why we should be particularly concerned now, given that the cybersecurity issues have been on the cards for decades. I think we're at a bit of an inflection point, frankly, in cybersecurity, especially in IT infrastructure. Partly that's a result of some of the emerging trends that have been emerging for some time now, but I think are finally coming to fruition, whether that's you know 5G, whether that's AI and some pretty exciting new machine learning applications and how that can be utilized both offensively and defensively, as well as, frankly, some of the larger geopolitical issues that have been playing out recently in terms of how the 5G build-out is going to be impacting overall internet governance and architecture, right? Whether we're heading toward kind of deeper divisions in cyberspace or whether we're actually going to see a coming together. But we've got lots of interests here, haven't we? Vendors, governments, service providers the military, and of course, end users. This is a complicated pie. Too complicated, surely. Internet governance for the longest time has been a big tent, uh, what we call a multi-stakeholder approach. So companies, academia, civil society, and yes, governments have all weighed in and thinking about how these diverse network architectures should speak more readily together. And that's, believe it or not, led us to where we are today in terms of a relatively global community of Internet users that can, you know, decently well communicate effectively at relatively high speed with one another. Whether or not that's a 21st century equivalent of Internet governance um, or whether we're heading in toward a much distant future, I think, is kind of so the key decisions that are being made right now. So not only is this a question for technical bodies um, or national governments or the UN, we're seeing these lines kind of blur between them. So increasingly, for example, we see national governments having an interest in what used to be a pretty technical discussion like the Internet Engineering Task Force, because they recognize that who gets to write the standards really gets to write the, the formulation, the language for this coming chapter of Internet governance. And we've seen different chapters throughout its history. It's started off as pretty anarchic. Nobody really cared about it. It was up to grad students, in some cases with fantastic beers, to decide how internet governance should look. Um, Then late 90s, all of a sudden fortunes were being made. We saw the birth of ICANN, right? Then up through 2006 with the the first World Summit on Information Systems. There we saw some 
tentative steps toward a greater globalization. But it was really kind of post-Snowden, right, that we've seen a lot of countries around the world set up and take notice of the current architecture and whether or not that effectively meets their needs. I think the Obama administration did a decent job of convincing a lot of emerging markets, like Brazil, for example, about the benefits of the multi-stakeholder status quo. But going into 2020 now and beyond, I'm wondering whether that consent um, and that consensus still is to that same degree as we saw, frankly, five years ago. Um, it seems like a lot of countries prefer this more cyber sovereignty approach that's been playing out a lot in these 5G discussions, and I think will only continue to. Are consumers aware, and should they be aware, of the complexities and vulnerabilities and even the roles involved? Surely people just want stuff to work. This looks like some sort of Pandora's box. There's a big element of this is why, why should we care? Why should consumers care about these bigger debates that are going on? I think part of it is a lack of understanding about this broader ecosystem. Like we touched on a bit during the panel, there's an understanding when you go and buy a smart speaker. Maybe you're looking for a given you know, AI engine behind it. You want to be able to quickly ask what the weather's going to be the next day and have it tell you. Less concerning typically is you know, who's behind that? Are they always listening into these conversations? And then from there, even more remote is who else has access to that data besides just the company, right? So I think a part of it is a lack of awareness or a lack of, frankly, caring about security when you poll people you know you get different responses but on average their consensus seems to be that people are caring more about cybersecurity and data privacy than they used to i've seen some surveys where if you ask people that have 10 or more internet connected devices how much they're willing to pay for cybersecurity for those devices it usually settles on seven to ten dollars a month right which seems to be a bit of a sweet spot and maybe the industry can do something with that right but it's not zero so that's positive that's progress. But then I think taking the next step and communicating to consumers who care about privacy and security, which devices and services they should be steered toward, that, that's difficult. We've seen some governments, like the UK has a Cyber Essentials Plus certificate, which is a public-private partnership that helps consumers better understand the security and the privacy behind those products. The EU has the CE mark that's been used for sustainability for a long time. Some governments, like the Netherlands, are coming out and, re and suggesting that, you know what, we really should have cybersecurity and privacy baked into CE marks. So we might see that. In the US, there's a civil society group, Consumer Reports, that ranks products and services in terms of their overall utility. And just in the last two years, they rolled out a digital standard. So they're starting to do the same thing for privacy and security of Internet-connected devices. And actually, IU, Indiana University, where I am, has been a partner in that effort. So we had a group of our graduate students helping, especially with smart TVs and mobile banking apps, um, basically adjusting the, the digital standard to those different sectors. So I think communicating to consumers more effectively and, frankly, doing a better job from both the government side as well as the education side of convincing people why we should care is, is really imperative and something that we haven't done a particularly good job at. It's a geopolitical issue too, though. Is cybersecurity being weaponized in a broad sense? I think so. I wrote a piece, just an op-ed a few months months ago talking about five different milestones of internet governance and one of them I chose was Stuxnet back in 2010. That was arguably the first use of a true cyber weapon a very sophisticated attack that in this case targeted Iran's nuclear enrichment um, facilities, particularly at Natanz. But we've seen great-grandsons of Stuxnet now being used. We've seen, for example, a group called Shadow Brokers breaking into the NSA archives and releasing lots of different exploits that have been used as a result against cities, including Baltimore, among others, right? So 
unfortunately, the cat's out of the bag. It doesn't take even a high degree of cyber sophistication to develop this. Look at North Korea, right? One of the most isolated kingdoms in the world, which now uses cyber attacks, including for fundraising for their government, right? To say nothing of other non-state groups who have similar capabilities. So I think it's there's no doubt that vulnerabilities in our systems are unfortunately being weaponized. I think there's a very legitimate question of what do we do about that? How do we do deterrence more effectively, both on the offensive side, as well as deterrence by denial. So just making our own systems harder to hack and being more transparent about that. Very few countries, for example, have published what's called vulnerabilities equities processes, where they actually are out front and saying, when when, we're, when we become aware of a vulnerability, do we disclose that back to a vendor? And when do we keep it, frankly, for use as an offensive cyber capability? Um, I think to the extent that we can see more governments being more transparent about that process, that's going to really help in norm building. How far can the legal domain address these issues? There's a lot of experimentation happening now on the legal side of IoT generally. They really run the gamut. There's a whole spectrum. So it's not the question of whether we regulate or not. Jurisdictions all around the world are. And right up front, it's it's too early to say which has been the most effective because we haven't been able to do the studies to figure that out. We know how difficult it is to get accurate, verifiable cyber threat um, information. So as a result, I think it's good to see and recognize the whole spectrum all the way from the strict liability approach that's being tried in France recently, all the way to you know more of a voluntary disclosure-based and potentially even industry-driven domain. And we've seen that, for example, in other, other areas like Energy Star in the U.S. That was a public-private partnership between the Department of Energy and industry to figure out sustainability standards for appliances. You could have industry on its own develop its own IoT trust marks, which could be a useful first step, I think, in communicating to consumers. It's difficult to do that in an effective way that both says something useful and isn't so 30,000 foot that you're not really going to be able to communicate what you want to, including how granular, right? Multi-factor authentication, ability to update, whatever it might be, right? Um, But I think those kind of steps are, are really useful. And whether we like it or not, what's happening in Sacramento and Brussels and even Beijing is having a big impact now, especially on more global IoT manufacturers. So I'd like to think that it's going to be a race to the top and not a race to the bottom, but so far we haven't seen regulators certainly, or industry in particular, settle on just one of these approaches, though I think there are increasingly baseline security standards based on reasonableness built in, particularly across the common law jurisdictions. Are the oversight organizations involved here really fit for purpose There's a lot of cooks in the kitchen, (laughs) certainly. So the initial impulse is to say, you know, all the above should be engaged. Uh, We need regulators and stakeholders at every level um, thinking about this problem. And, you know, at uh, at Indiana University, we have something called the, the Ostrom Workshop, which has done a lot of work over the years in thinking through Um, what's called polycentric governance. So how do you get a lot of different stakeholders at a lot of different governance scales to work better together around a common problem? And it's not easy, right? And you need to have, for example, deep cooperation and interaction between these different stakeholders for you to reach an effective outcome. Otherwise, there can be fragmentation and gridlock, and frankly, not a lot gets done. There have been steps in that. So, for example, the EU has these cooperation groups, which have been helpful in different aspects of critical infrastructure, cybersecurity. This was part of the Network Information Security Directive. I'd frankly like to see something like that for IoT specifically. That would be useful not only across the EU, but 
I'd like to see more of the barriers go down for the ISACs, the existing information sharing and analysis centers that have been set up. Some industries have set those up on their own, like we have one for retail, we have one for automobiles. Each of the 16 infrastructure sectors in the U.S. have those. IoT is pretty amorphous, so you could see about different sectors within IoT creating their own, but I think the extent to which that we can start to break down those barriers, including across national boundaries and share cyber threat information more readily, that's only going to be helpful and something regulators should encourage. What are the particular near-term sensitivities you detect now? Yeah, a lot of them have been festering for quite some time now. Um, We've seen recently another entree into the encryption debate and backdoors in. Uh, Australia passed a law within the last year basically mandating these backdoors for law enforcement purposes. There's certainly elements within the U.S. government that would like to see something similar. I mean, a lot of countries, of course, would like that power. Of course, the problem with that is when you let government in, you can let anybody else that has the same keys in as well, right? So industry, quite rightly, in my opinion, is pushing back pretty strongly against that, Apple and and otherwise. So I think we'll continue to see that encryption debate in the IoT context, of course, but also more broadly being one of those key pressure points. It's not an easy solution. It's not going to be one that's resolved quickly. Now that one of the Five Eyes members has done this, it has interesting implication for the rest of the Five Eyes, for sure, and intelligence sharing purposes. But you're right to point to data localization and this broader question of cyber sovereignty as being another touch point. This has been built in to an extent and even the Belt and Road Initiative at this point. So I don't think we're, we're rushing necessarily to a new digital divide or digital cold war. But at the same time, I think we are going to see these different architectures and very different visions and approaches to cybersecurity and Internet governance play out more in the 21st century than they certainly did in the late 20th. If you were sitting next to a CEO of a large telecom provider or a large customer right now, What advice would you give them about all of these issues? Well, cybersecurity shouldn't just be a cost center. It should be a differentiator. And in my opinion, at least, it should be even a corporate social responsibility. Um, Part of the EU's GDPR is a code of conduct provision. So industry that really has a front and center, more proactive role in developing codes of conduct, including for IoT, can use that as an affirmative defense if they ever get fined down the road. So in other words, these big enforcement provisions of up to 4% of global total revenue could be dramatically declined if you do uh, take that affirmative step and become active in this area. So I think not only is it in your consumers and your partners and vendors' best interest to take this stuff seriously, but it can also be on your own bottom line when you look at regulators. I think requiring cybersecurity standards on vendors as well is really important and keeping a really close eye on supply chain cybersecurity more generally. That could include a whole range of provisions, but using the power of contracts and requiring even, even frameworks like the NIST cybersecurity framework for all your contractors can do, frankly, a lot, not only to help your own business, but also the wider industry in raising its game, kind of the JFK metaphor of all boats rising, you know, when it comes to cyber hygiene and cybersecurity. And also, frankly, I think just doing more to to partner and spread the gospel. So, I mean, Microsoft, to its credit, was atrocious at cybersecurity until the early 2000s when they developed the security development lifecycle. And they spread that very freely and have been at the epicenter of some of the more helpful efforts, I think, internationally recently. So I think because Becoming active, spreading what works is really imperative for us to do a better job as an industry and a sector. It seems that we're going to need a huge number of especially skilled individuals to answer the call in this area. Turning to your own activities, how can we deal with the training? What's going on? 
when you look at depending on the statistics you look at, the need for cybersecurity professionals is almost three or fourfold the need for the number of nurses at this point. I mean, it's just dramatic. Um, in my estimation, and you know, and you know, feel free to disagree, but it is the helping profession of the 21st century. Um, and I think to the extent that we can dispel kind of old visions of cybersecurity professionals being, frankly guys in hoodies sitting in dark rooms coding, uh, the better. Because in actuality, cybersecurity professionals do all sorts of things, right? They're writing privacy policies. They're negotiating public policy with a lot of regulators all around the world. You know, how should these norms look for this space? How should data localization work? How should the cloud work in this context, right? I mean, of course, they're also doing a lot in kind of run-of-the-mill technical cybersecurity too. But I think, and the way we approach it at Indiana University is exposing students early on to the technical, of course, but also the legal and business dimensions of cybersecurity risk management. Because if you only know one of those, you're really missing the wider picture. So we require students to take courses across those three disciplines, as well as then pick a specialization if they would like to, and then most importantly, apply what they've learned for real-world clients through a cybersecurity clinic and and a whole array of capstone projects. Not only to hone their craft, but also to help out under resource stakeholders in needy communities, in this case all across Indiana, but you could scale that all across the country and the world. In fact, we're working on something called a Cyber Peace Corps with a few uh, nonprofit foundations, including the Cyber Peace Foundation in India, on that idea right now. So I think, uh, and and I'm encouraged to say as well that IU was the first uh, partnership that brought three schools together under one umbrella, but we're now seeing other universities like Tufts and even NYU to an extent follow on. So my hope is that we're going to see more and more colleges, community colleges and universities recognize that, yeah, students need technical training when it comes to cybersecurity, but they also need to look at this broader view. Um, and hopefully then as these graduates enter the workforce, we can start to transition the highest levels of leadership from this more myopic approach to cybersecurity. Finally, what are your predictions for this year? My crystal ball is opaque as anybody else's, but I did my best. And I have a book coming out this year called The Internet of Things, What Everyone Needs to Know, which is an Oxford University Press book that's uh, coming out in a couple months. And in there, you know, I really try to delve into these trend lines that we mentioned at the beginning of our of our conversation about, all right, what can technology save us here, right? Blockchain, AI, machine learning, even some new old practices applied in this new area like cyber risk insurance. How helpful maybe could that be, including to small and medium-sized businesses, right? The short answer is some of it can be helpful. We're writing an article now looking at blockchain in the smart grid context, for example, which can be a useful way to both improve sustainability and cybersecurity as well as trust in these distributed systems. But, you know, but if push came to shove, I would say that you know, the, the biggest predictions will be broader use of IoT vulnerabilities than we've seen in the past. I'd, I'd argue that the Mariah Botnet was just, just the beginning. And as we see 20 billion plus internet connected devices being rolled out in the next few years, they will be taken advantage of. They're going to hit the headlines more. And you know whether that's going to be enough to actually bend the curve and actually convince consumers to take us that much more seriously and regulators along with them, we'll see. But a lot more IoT vulnerabilities. I think we'll see more AI and machine learning enabled environments in the cloud context in particular that hopefully small and medium-sized enterprises will be able to take advantage of. So that's going to be helpful on the security side, but also on the offensive side, because those groups are going to have the same capabilities um, to attack uh, these targets. And then, you know, I think we're going to continue to see insurance and increasingly 
IoT trust marks, these safe harbor provisions, and a crystallization of what reasonable IoT security looks like take part. Some of that's going to be rules-based coming from the EU and otherwise. Other times it's going to be with a more common law approach where we're going to look at precedent and all these emerging frameworks to try to figure out this really messy question of what reasonable cybersecurity is in the IoT context, which isn't static. It's going to change along with the technology, the industry, and the threat landscape. But I think that conversation is going to start in earnest, and my hope is that more and more IoT companies and telecoms will be proactive in that discussion and make sure their voices are heard. Professor Scott Shackleford. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for the opportunity. That's it from Smart Pacific. Show notes are available on the PTC website at ptc.org. Check them out. Thanks for listening. PTC is the premier global nonprofit membership organization promoting ICT in the Pacific Rim. Get involved in the world's most dynamic ICT region. Join PTC today. Participate in PTC seminars and conferences. Engage in PTC research programs. Make web contributions to PTC outreach. Share our dialogue and these PTC podcasts. Help us by rating them on iTunes. For more information about what PTC can do for you, see ptc.org.